Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives with Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts about God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our Rhythms. We pray this message is a blessing. Amen. Well, good morning, New Life, Cool and Gather. What a joy it is to always gather around the Word of God. How are we doing this morning? Terrific. I hear a few murmurs. It sounds um, like what we really all wanted to say was hot. And uh, it surely is. My sweat patches are out in force, so try not to get too distracted by them. But if you haven't met me before, uh, my name is David Scambry, and I get the absolute pleasure of being a pastor here at New Life Coolangatta. And and today, I get the joy of continuing our Rhythms series. It's a series New Life does every single year, and it's a series where we as a church are challenged not to spend the beginning of the year being so focused on what goals we're setting or what achievements we're going to uh, uh, get, you know, but actually focus on a single question. What kinds of people are we becoming? See, we believe as a church that the things we do, small or large, the practices we engage in regularly, whether something as small as filling our spare time with doom scrolling, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever your thing is, or something really large like finding yourself uncontrollably obsessed with the cares and the worries of this world, all of those things are more than just how we fill our time. We believe they're crafting a mold that shapes the kinds of people we're actually becoming. There's a Christian thought leader and philosopher. His name is Cornelius Plantinga, and he explains it this way. He says, if you sow a thought, you'll reap a deed. If you sow a deed, you'll reap another deed. If you sow some deeds, you're going to reap a habit. If you sow some habits, you'll reap a character. If you sow a character, you'll reap two more thoughts. And he goes on to explain how these new thoughts will repeat this process until at last simple thoughts have the power to shape entire lives. The Bible actually teaches this principle really well, and it calls it the principle of sowing and reaping. And in no uncertain, time, uncertain terms, Galatians 6, 7 uh, describes it this way. It says, do not be deceived. And so we today should not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I believe the word man is inclusive of woman. Don't worry. Friends, the rhythms we live by, the thoughts, deeds, and habits that we sow into our lives, they are shaping the types of people we're becoming. And so my question for each of us in this room is, what rhythms do you currently have? What habits and practices do you engage in regularly? What do you do in your life, both thoughtlessly and intentionally? And what kind of person are they shaping you into? And with that in mind, I wonder, how could we as a church, how could we as a community of God, how could we craft our lives around a set of rhythms that help us become a more people, more like Jesus? And today we're going to continue this series uh, with what at first might seem a little bit unusual. It's called a rhythm of feasting. And anyone in the room who's kind of bored of sermon series is saying, don't do this and don't do that. This is the sermon for you. You can let out a collective whoop. And, and, And the thing is about the rhythm of feasting is that the good news is it's not just some weird new Christian kind of new agey or New Testament thing that we're trying to bring to make Christianity seem cooler or more accessible or more fun or more hype for you. Don't worry, this feast. Feasting is actually embedded 
into the pages of scripture from the very first page all the way to the end. This is a rhythm central to what it means to be God's people and to be a kind of people who seek a life where we might actually live with the kind of wholeness and joy that we were designed by God for. So let's jump into scripture. Let's have a look where this idea of feasting shows up. And we're going to start, as I said, on the first page, all the way back in creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. You'll find it on the slides behind me. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times. Everybody say sacred times. Sacred times. times. Keep it in the head. And days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give lights on the earth. And it was so. Imagine being that powerful. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars and he set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Perhaps you ask, well, I didn't see the word feasting anywhere in there. What are you talking about? What are you saying? But what we do see is that on the first page, God sets out this thing called sacred times. And as we jump forward just a couple of books, God then expands on what these sacred times are. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, he says, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies or sacred times. And in fact, he would go on in this chapter to map out seven feasts, which didn't just become seven nice feasts that they did every now and then, but the entire calendar of God's people was wrapped around these feasts from the first one being the Passover, which was the first month of their year because they wanted to start the year celebrating God all the way to the last feast. It was a central part of what they did. But perhaps you go, well, that's cool, but we're in the New Testament. We're Christians. We're not Jewish people. So what is feasting to do with us? What about Jesus? Did he say anything? Well, in Luke 15, uh, verses 22 to 24, he says this. And, and he's, talking, he's telling a story about a, a life being returned to him after leaving and departing for sin. And he says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Celebration, feasting is the natural response to a life coming together with Christ. And when we come together with Christ in salvation, the heavens celebrate. There is feasting in the, and amongst the angels, right? And in the same way as we see lives touched by the goodness of Jesus, there should be feasting here on earth. And in fact, the whole New Testament kind of wraps up with images of feasting. In fact, if we turn our eyes to Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud pearls of thunder. And they were shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Let's be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. And this fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And just a side note and a tangent, notice that it was given her. Such a beautiful gift of Jesus. And then it goes on to say, then the angel said to me, write this, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Friends, for many of us, the only food-related rhythm we've ever heard of is fasting. It's a rhythm of scarcity. It focuses on where we're deficient and how deeply we need to remember that we do not live on bread alone, but we actually live on the words of God. But there is also deeply embedded in the narrative of scripture a call to feasting, a rhythm of rejoicing. And it focuses on the promises and the experience in our place today regarding the goodness of God. We fast, but we also must feast. This is what a good, healthy Christian rhythm looks like. And so my hope today is that we would learn that our God is so aware of what life looks like for us. He's not blind. He's not silly. He knows how hard it is for us to connect our experience of life with his promise of it. And so with that in mind, uh, my hope is that we might trust his calling and even prioritize his rhythms more in our lives as a means of war on the doubt, disconnection, and apathy we feel every single day. And that we, us, we might see our communities, not just in this room, but our extended communities, transformed, transformed by, by means of a strange but joy-filled practice of feasting as a community with and before our God. But before we do any of that, would you join with me in prayer? Lord, what a God we have. I just thank you so much that you are not the God of other religions where your chief concern is that we go without, we deprive the flesh and we suffer. But you're a God of feasting. And I thank you, God, that you're not the God of some other religions which only care about sensual experience and not about health and life. You're also the God of fasting. I thank you that, God, you are a God of health and life, abundance and hope, the God of wholeness and perfection. May we today just see a glimpse of that again. Spirit of God, I trust that you are in this room. I believe that you're at work here. I pray that we as a community might also choose faith that you are present. We love you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for your grace. May the words of mine that aren't of you be gone and forgotten. And may the words of mine that are of you be remembered. In your perfect name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And God said... Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days, and years. Over Christmas season, um, I got the absolute pleasure of having more feasts than I know how to count on a hand. It actually was only five, so I can't count that on a hand. But the point is, we gathered together, um, Ella and myself, with Ella's family, my family. She had a brother's birthday somewhere in the middle. We had our Christmas Eve service here. And then, just to top it all off, we, had, um, we went away for four days camping to celebrate, I don't know, friendship and her 30th birthday and, you know, then the Christmas and New Year's season. And by the end of it, I was tired. Like it was, you know, feasting. I was feasted out. In fact, sometimes when I think of Christmas food, I still feel kind of full. In fact, we ate so much food that Ella and I are now on a really serious diet. So pray for my soul and our uh, irritability in the midst of this season. But here's the thing. Throughout this time, Ella's brother and myself had these really engaging conversations. And in these conversations, he highlighted some sense he was having in his soul. He said he couldn't help but feel that when he reads the Bible and then he goes out and lives life, there was something just 
disconnected between these two realities. It was like the Bible would talk about something he believed to be true, and then the world would tell him something and show him something that just didn't seem to feel or be experienced the same way. I wonder if anyone in this room has ever had a similar experience. The world today is very different from the way that God designed it to be. You noticed? You noticed? You know, you might get up in the morning, you open your Bibles, flip it open and you you go to Genesis and read the account of creation or you you, you flip to a beautiful psalm of hope and life or you you flip forward a bit more, you read a gospel story of deliverance and love and faithfulness or you flip forward and see the nature and the shape of the church forevermore and you read these amazing and beautiful stories and then you close the Bible, though deeply believing it, you get up and go to your workplaces, your family, your life, whatever you do with that day and it just seems like the more you spend time away from the word, the more distant a memory it seems and as you try to reconcile what you read with what your life feels like it just it's incongruent at times anyone understanding what I'm saying anyone feeling this today right we read our Bibles but life just doesn't always link so well there can be a dissonance between those remarkably good promises of God and our day-to-day experience of him you know this is something that I struggle with personally quite a lot you know, ever since I've been a Christian, and, and I don't even, I can't even tell you now, it's been like, I'm so bad at math, 13 years or something like that, 14 years. And, and, and ever since I became a Christian, I, I've wrestled with something that looks a lot like this. I, I get up a lot of mornings in my Christian walk, and I'm hit, barraged almost, by a great wave of doubt. A great wave of doubt. And this isn't intellectual, well-reasoned, or well-thought-through doubt. This isn't the kind of doubt where I've stayed up all night thinking through the Bible and the logic of it, and I've gone, ha, silliness. You know, like that's not what's happened here. I've woken up in the morning, and my soul feels this heart-wrenching pull away from the gospel, a great pulling that it can't be true. There is no way. It cries out to me, surely the gospel is too good to be true. Surely this God is too loving to be real. This feels like a fairy tale. It feels absurd. And I've experienced this over and over again. And I settled it in my soul because I realized that absurdity is no evidence for or against a thing. For instance, jellyfish exist. We all know what I'm talking about. Those things are absolutely weird, but they're real. And their weirdness doesn't make them any less real. And so the absurdity isn't an argument for or against something. But I get up in the morning nonetheless, and my soul It feels a gravitation. It feels a gravity pulling it away from God because what I've experienced of life doesn't line up with the great beautiful and and remarkable promises of his goodness and his character. And and when we think of this and we look back to Genesis chapter one, we come to this conclusion that, that God's not fast. He's not phased by this. He's not sitting in heaven going, tsk, David be a better Christian. You know, like that's, that's not up. That's not his attitude. In fact, he seemed to expect it. He's not surprised by this. He's planned for it. In fact, all the way back in the beginning on the fourth measured day of existence, God actually began baking resistance to this disconnection into the very fabric of reality. Right Before there was sin, hurt, or death, right? God cooked. He, he crafted into the stars, the moon, and the sun signs to mark out sacred seasons, that is, times of celebration and feasts, by which his people, God's people, could shape their entire lives around. So where we, where I, David, I find myself feeling uncertain, disconnected, uh, totally 
separated as a believer, God, as always, is perfectly confident and sure. He has a plan and I'm safe in the hands of it. And I wonder today if you feel this distance, dissonance, if you feel this disconnection, if you feel this distance or this difference yourself in your own heart, I wonder whether you could today leave this place more confident of the fact that, that feeling that does not make you a great hefty sinner, but what we do choose, how we choose to respond to it, whose name we will trust, what words we will build our life on, that will measure the success, measure the health of our souls going forward. It will measure the strength of our faith. And God having a plan where he baked into our, our very cosmos resistance to this disconnection. He he elaborates in the verse we read before in Leviticus 23, verses one to two. He says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Friends, the whole Bible is wrapped in feasts. I've said it already, but I want to make this point again because I just don't want us to leave this place thinking that God thought feasting was a nice add-on, like an optional extra. But actually, God called his people to craft their lives through a rhythm of feasting. From Genesis 1, long before there was sin or brokenness crafted into the cosmos, all the way to the book of Revelation, right at the end where they craft and paint an image of eternity. Feasting is central to it, that we might experience his goodness, his provision, his abundance in community and in celebration with no lack, loss, or one forevermore. And in the middle of these two celebrations, right, where we are today between creation and redemption, eternal redemption, right, we're in this place of a broken sinfulness. We're in this place where even us Christians, we have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God. And yet still we go through life struggling to reconcile what we see of scripture with what we experience in life. Still we have this challenge to walk through. And so in this gap between the two, feasting becomes even more pertinent to wholeness in our Christian lives. And this is why in the midst of the book of Leviticus, where God is writing a marriage covenant and declaring to his people what it looks like to be his people, he dictates, mandates, sets in stone a law that says, wrap your calendar around feasting, celebrating, and remembering me. But perhaps you sit there and you go, but I don't get the actual logic of it. Like, just to be honest, why would I feast? How does feasting help in any way resolve the disconnection between my life and the promises of God? How does chonking down some food with some friends for a few times a year help God seem more real for me? And as I've reflected on this scripture, I see three ways. The first is that in feasting, as we gather together and eat food, we can choose to hope. And the second is that in feasting, We can pause in remembrance. And the third is that in our feasting, we can live in participation with God and his kingdom. And all I want to do for the short time we have left is actually unpack unpack these and hopefully make a compelling point that we would be a community of believers that actually finds great joy in rhythms of feasting before God in and through our lives. So let's dive in. What does it mean to choose to hope? In Revelation 19, verse 9, it says, Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper. 
I don't know what you think when you hear the word supper. I'm English and my brain just goes straight to like Oliver Twist or like Willy Wonka. I don't know why. And I imagine supper is this cold kind of bowl of stew that some poor orphaned kid is eating on the side of a road. I don't know why it goes there, but it does. And so when I read the wedding supper, it doesn't feel quite so uh, joyful. But, but the thing is, the, um, the Jewish people, even more than us today, know that a wedding supper or a wedding um, experience, which you eat at a wedding, isn't a cold bowl of soup, homeless on the streets. It's a feast, right? Like anyone ever eaten at a wedding before? You, you do not eat bad at a wedding. You indulge and you delight, and it costs that married couple dearly. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> And he's saying this, you're invited, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Friends, do you know it's a blessing to be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb? Do you know it's a blessing that a day is coming where we will actually experience what it is to be in the presence of God, to eat and drink of his abundance, his goodness, his kindness, and his love? Have you stopped to consider the remarkable reality of our situation on earth? There is a day coming that will be unlike any we've experienced in our lives so far, that will be so wonderful and so beautiful that when we're sitting in it, we'll look back and say, how was our lives ever quite like that? This is the hope we have. How can hope resolve our distance? Well, here's what we have to recognize, is that what feasting does is it celebrates the abundance someone has. And you know, um, for us as Christians, the first person we celebrate, like the celebration of abundance, it, it can't be to ourselves. It can't be to what we've achieved or what we've brought or to, to our grandeur because that doesn't make sense to us. Why? Be- because we as Christians don't believe we've brought or built or done anything. We believe we're stewards of God's good creation. James, uh, James, the book of James, the New Testament, teaches that every good thing comes from the Father above. And, and as Christians, we hear that and we go, so what you're saying is, sure, I might have done some work in cooking, but the very reason I have the ability to cook, we have the utensils to cook on, flavors to cook with, right, and food to cook itself, and people to invite to enjoy that cooking. All of these things are not done by David and his terrible cooking. They're done as a gift and a kindness from God. And so when I feast, I will feast in celebration to him, for he is the source of all the goodness. You see, even before there was sin and brokenness and woundedness in our world, when God um, built into, cooked into, baked into the tapestry of existence, a call to celebrate, to feast, to enjoy his creation, it was always to be and will in eternity always be about recognizing that all we have, the very breath in our lungs, the wholeness and the healing in our souls is a gift from God. And without him, we have nothing, not even life itself. That is our truth. That is our truth. And that doesn't mean and discount at all the hard work we do as human beings. It doesn't discount that at all. But we just celebrate the reality that stands behind that. And you know, if it's true in creation and it's true in eternity that we must celebrate the abundance of God, how much more true is it in the middle? In this space we're in right now, struggling with sinfulness in a world which teaches and tells us in every possible way, barraging our senses and our minds with ideas that defy and oppose the kingdom of God. How much more important is it for us to set rhythms where we look forward to these days of perfect provision? You see, in feasting, what we experience is the first fruits, the foretaste of the home we have ahead of us. 
We partake in a small seed, a partial picture, a sampling of the wonderful goodness to come. So first in feasting, we delight in the image of God's promise for us. But how do we do this? How do we practice hope in and through the way we feast? How do we do this? So we've gathered together as a community, right? We've cooked some delicious food, and now we can just sit down and scoff, stuff our faces and scoff it down, right? But is that feasting to God? Does that bring hope? Not in and of itself. So how does this feasting come before God in hope? Well, we make rhythms to choose, to taste the food we're tasting, and oh, in part, this is what God wanted us to taste when we ate steak. Oh, yum. But there is a fullness to come. That in part, as we indulge and delight our senses, we get to experience the provision he's given us to be able to eat it all. And we get to experience the wonderful flavors he's crafted and know that that points to a day to come where the flavors will be unlike any we've ever had before, the perfection of creation unmarred by sin. And then beyond that, we also get to see the provision bountiful without lack, loss, or want. And we will be in a day today where we eat and we feast and we see the abundant provision of God in this day and in this age and know that first and foremost, it paints a picture that we get to look forward to. So as we eat, we stop. We pause within our souls and we choose to let the food ruminate, stir, call out images of hope that we might resist our impulse uh, towards understanding the scarcity we live in and rather engage our imaginations to foresee a day promised to us. Because I wonder to everyone in this room, when was the last time you truly, truly paused to let yourself believe that that day is coming? There is a home awaiting us. There is life and life in its full only a few short years ahead. When was the last time it truly sunk deep and you tasted and you saw in your imaginations and in your spirit-filled hope a day to come? That's my question. And in feasting as we gather and we make food and we partner together as a community, we can do that collectively. And we might hear someone else say something we would never have even imagined that, fulfill, that would fill our hearts with joy. And you could say something that encourages any, someone else with an image of eternity that prompts in their souls great hope, great anticipation, and great life. And so we do it as a community. We do it over food as a prompt. And we make sure in the midst of it, we choose to indulge hope. And in the second way, we feast in a way that bridges the gap between where we are and what the Bible paints to be, is that we pause in remembrance. You know, in the first, we look forward. We look forward to a day to come, and we let our hearts dream. And in the second, we look back, and we look back on the days that have come, and we let our hearts be thankful in Luke 15, 23 to 24, Jesus says this, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice what the father does. He's seen the faithfulness and the goodness of God move. And so he responds by celebrating that move of God. He responds by celebrating the goodness of God advancing into his son's life. And so we feast in remembrance, in celebration of the reality of what God is doing in our lives. 
But maybe you go, well, I don't know how remembrance, how just taking the time to remember something could resolve our experience, the difference between God's word and our lives. And good question. But you see, God thought it was pretty instrumental, pretty important. In Leviticus chapter 23, uh, where we read before, God commands feasting. He actually goes on to outline seven feasts that were by law mandated to be part of the Jewish calendar. These weren't just nice ideas, that these were mandated to their lives. And this is them. I'm going to do these so crudely, so just bear with me. And if you're interested, do some more research. They're a lot bigger than this. But, but the first feast was to remember how God moved in power to overcome a wicked oppressor. It's called the Feast of the Passover. As Christians, we've heard of this, right? The second feast is to remember how God moved with speed to save his people from slavery. And, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third feast to remember how God moved in kindness to bring fruitfulness to his people. And it's called the Feast of First Fruits. The fourth feast is to remember how God moved in faithfulness to feed his people in every season. Think manna in the desert. And it's called the Feast of Weeks. And it's also known as Pentecost. The fifth feast is to remember how God moved in holiness and remains sacred even as he moves among his people, and it's called the Feast of Trumpets. The sixth feast to remember how God moved and moves with grace and forgiveness of sins, trespasses, and rebellion. That's who he is, and it's called the Feast of the Day of Atonement. And on the seventh feast is to remember how God moved to deliver his people from a broken and corrupted land to a promised land, and it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you listen to each of those feasts, the first thing I want to say is these feasts do the first thing as well. They cast our minds forward to a day to come where we will truly be delivered from the oppressiveness of death and sin within us once and for all, and we will no longer experience temptation. Or perhaps where we will see, where we, where we will have moved from this present broken world into a land promised to us to come. So yes, it also, these feasts shape our choice to hope. But one thing you notice as you read them is that every one of those feasts, first and foremost, looks back. It looks back to a way God has moved. It looks back to something God has done. And it celebrates that move of God. In fact, the way the Jews would do it is they would create rhythms in and through their feasting to not let their feasting become solely about eating and gluttony and community and jovialness or hedonism alone. They would actually integrate into their feasting moments where they would read their scriptures, moments where they would pray, moments where they would give testimony. And there would be these rhythms in and through the day where people would share and encourage and enliven one another with the promises of the goodness of God in relation to the specific feast being celebrated. And I believe that if we, as God's people, just paused to look, we also see a truth that not only in our lives, but also in the lives around us is true, that our God, our Father who is in heaven, our Savior, the one who loves our souls like no other, he is a wonder-working and living God in our world, in our day, in our lives, and in the lives of the people around us. Maybe as I say that, you, your soul struggles to resonate. Maybe that's true for him. Maybe that's true for her, but I struggle to see it. You know, I have a bad habit of moving too fast through life, and I miss a lot of the goodness God gives. Uh, I shared this story once before, but it reminds me of my little uh, nephew's, I think, second birthday, and we handed him a present, and the first thing he did was rip it over and went, wow, threw it and grabbed the next present, and went, wow, threw it and grabbed the next present. He never stopped to enjoy or be grateful. He just wanted more. And I, I know that I can be a bit like that before God. 
I wonder if the same for you, where we just keep going through life so focused on our present need and our present trouble, we forget to see the way our past needs and our past troubles, our past prayers and our past hopes have already been answered by a wonder-working God. And it's in this that we see remembrance playing its part. So how do we actually practice remembrance in our feasting? Well, here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. When I became a Christian, I had the unfortunate bad luck of learning what grace was with the wrong group of people. And and, uh, grace is a beautiful thing, but I just happened to do it with people who couldn't care less about the actual grace and cared more about just doing it. And so, you know, I mean, I wasn't a Christian for most of my life, and then I become a Christian. I go to eat food the way most normal people eat food, which is by sticking it in my mouth. And then they will look at me and go, how dare you? And I'd be like... You put the food in front of me. Why are you saying how dare me? And they'll be like, we have to say grace. And I'll go, oh, okay, sorry, I forgot about that thing. And then what would follow would be this weird, dry um, mishmash of rhymes or poems or something strange, right, that was just like they just did it because they did it. And, and whilst not everyone does grace that way in any way or any stretch, I was just unfortunate enough to be exposed to a collection of people in a row who one of them even said, how dare you eat? Let's say grace. And then their grace was legitimately a song designed to make people at the table laugh instead of actually give praise to God. And I remember just being like, this is a horrible tradition. I don't like this. Until I sat with someone who did grace genuinely, who just sat before God and thanked him honestly for what he's given them. He just went, wow, how blessed I am to live in a world where there are farmers who grow my food. Man, I'm so fortunate that we have logistics systems that can bring food from Germany to Australia. I'm so blessed that I live in a society where I can just go to Coles or Woolworths and buy my food. You remember back in the days where we could afford it? And, we, we, and he, he said, I'm so blessed, God, that I know how to cook or that I have people to invite over. And it was just short and sweet, but so, so wonderful. And I think that as we do our pausing in remembrance when we feast, we have to be careful to be like that guy and not like, you know, just jovially saying things to move on. It's actually a really simple practice that we do. We begin to eat, or before we eat, or after we eat. We simply invite one another to share one or two things they're celebrating God for. Make it honest, make it authentic, don't make a joke out of God because he is good, and those things we say could encourage one another. In fact, why don't we practice that right now? The amazing tech team has engineered a timer for the screen. Um, It took them some hard work. Um, But I'm going to put that on. It's 20 seconds. That's not long enough for you to really share the things God's doing in your life. My hope is it would prompt a conversation that will continue later. But why don't you take those 20 seconds, and why don't you turn to a neighbor and share something you're praising God for? How about we put that timer on now? Alrighty, that's time. I don't think a single person probably got their whole praise out. That sucks, hey. Luckily, we have a cafe downstairs after the service where we can continue these conversations then and there. Amazing plug, amazing plug. Hey, let's bring it back in. Amazing. I'm serious though. What if we continued these conversations later? What if truly we made a priority of sharing the reasons we have for praise? It wasn't awkward, it wasn't weird, it wasn't confronting. It's just open and honest. God is good and he's alive. Why not talk about it? Why not encourage the people around us with it? That is our truth. That is our reality. 
And the more we shy away and hide from it, the more difficult we make it for other people to believe that God is alive in their lives. Right? And so this is the way we feast in remembrance. We pause and we celebrate earnestly. And it's something God has made a pretty critical part of his people's lives. The final way we feast with God and before God is in participation with him. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Well, do you show contempt for the, richness, uh, for the riches of his kindness, the forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We feast first looking forward, looking forward to a day to come in hope. We feast second looking backwards to a day that has come and is even happening right now where God is moving. Our hope is fulfilled. But we also feast in participation with what God's already doing in this world. What, what does that mean or look like? It's actually a sacred Old Testament practice that uh, roots back to Abraham and Sarah feeding strangers who came past their camp, where they opened their storehouses and lavishly blessed upon them uh, the, a, a feast, not just food to survive, but a feast, whereby these strangers who came as strangers would leave, not as strangers, but as friends. And this idea would shape a culture which today we understand as hospitality. And this idea of welcoming and loving people, of blessing people, of letting our kindness take the relationship they have with us and be transformed to a more positive one, it's not just something we do as people, it's something God does in this world to us. Romans 5.8 says it this way, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we had cleaned up our act, not when we had got it together, no. Whilst we were still sinners. A couple of verses later in verse 10, it says, while we were God's enemies, not just accidentally sinning, but actively opposing him, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. In other words, like those strangers who visited Abraham, we were once all strangers before God. Not just strangers passively, but actively often in hostility towards him and his ways, opposing the words he's brought us, Right? And God in that moment and in that day prepared a table of welcome, lavishly blessing and sacrificing for us that we might know him as his friend, that his kindness could lead us to repentance. Feasting before God when we open our homes and our tables to those around us, when we, when, when, when we not only those we know, I want to add, but our, the strangers, the neighbors in our streets, the people in this church you haven't met yet, as we open our tables and welcome people to feast beside us, we partner with the mission and mandate of God. Hospitality is central to the expression of the gospel and has been since the early church. And as we do this, as we participate by opening our table that people might come and hear how we hope and hear what we remember of God's goodness and faithfulness, it actually witnesses to them the wonderful truth of God. As we don't feel nervous or anxious, we just share it as an overflow of our reality that people might see the goodness of God in our lives and say, boy, I need a bit of that in mine. Or maybe other Christians might see it and go, boy, that encourages me to chase him a bit further and for a bit longer, even though the season's hard. As we feast together, whether we're doing it as the host or we're cooking or whether we're inviting or whether we're just enjoying it, as we participate in a rhythm of feasting, we extend out to our world an image of heaven. We preview to our world the heart of God and not only his heart, but as we gather without shying away, declaring how God is good, we also preview to our world his wonder-working hand, the way he is alive and he is good and he is doing things. So what do we do? We participate 
by inviting freely, just as Jesus invited us freely to join him. By giving lavishly, just as Jesus first lavishly gave his life for us. Extending out our arm in love, our ear in interest, our welcome in gentleness, just as Jesus first in becoming a human being and walking amongst us and dying for us and resurrecting uh, afterwards, right? He extended his arm in love and his ear in interest and his welcome in gentleness to each of us. That we might see enemies of strangers of God in our world and in our communities become his friends through the witness of his kindness. But we open our doors and our modern storehouses, pantries and fridges. And we make known to a world that God is still good. That distance, that disconnection and that difference between where the world is right now and where God calls us to be is a whole lot more bridged when we partner our acts, when we partner our works, when we partner our service, when we partner our social circles with what God wants to do in this world. That is true. Could the band come up? We hope together, we remember together, and we participate together. This is how we feast with and before our God. It is not just stuffing our face with food with a few friends. What a joyful thing. But in the midst of that, letting the reality of God be celebrated, that his glory might advance. It's a beautiful calling that we have. Beautiful calling. Because friends, if you don't know it, there is a day coming. We will taste the eternal goodness of God. Everything will be made new. Those impulses towards sin, the irritability, the anger, the short-temperedness, that brokenness, that insecurity, and that wound, it will be healed and you will be made new and you will never taste that thing again. And that's a truth we can count on because God already came and suffered was beaten, mocked, opposed, abused, his flesh torn. That our sins and our brokenness and all the reasons we have for separation from him could be laid upon him truly and deeply. And he would die paying the full and total price for all we've done, for all of that insecurity and fear and rebellion. Because in him today, What we see in that sacrifice is that God so, so, so loved you and I. That when he looked at you and when he looks at me, he sees us as someone worth dying for. He sees our life and treasures it so much, he would suffer for us. He would suffer for us. This is the love that God has for you and for I that he would see someone worth suffering for, even as we're his enemies, even as we sin. He sees us as someone worth saving. Friends, God is uniquely good. He is holy. And it's no wonder we're called to feast with and before him in our lives, because who else is there? Would you join with me in prayer? Father, I, I just thank you right now. I thank you that you've called us in your love to not just fast, to not just suffer for your sake, which is a big part of what it is to be a follower of you, but also to feast, to delight and to rejoice in all the wonderful goodness of your hand. Lord, I thank you that you cared enough about every one of us 
that we wouldn't just be spoiled brats and we wouldn't just be uh, suffering with nothing, but that we would actually journey a life to wholeness, to freedom, to healing. And that is your concern. May you help us bridge that gap between our life and our lived experience and the promises and the goodness of your word. Would you stir in us a yearning and a burning and a desire to host and, and, and to create spaces where we could celebrate your name, reflect on your wonder, God, where we might participate in your gospel, advancing the strangers on our streets and in our, in our lands might come before you, God, and be saved. Lord, I praise you in this room. And maybe in this room, if you haven't, made a decision to follow Jesus before. With all eyes closed and with all heads bowed. I just wanna give you a chance. Maybe you've only ever heard of the God of fasting. Never the God who cares about your feasting as well. And if you wanna make a decision to follow him for the first time, I just wanna give you a space to raise your hand. If you wanna make a decision to start a conversation with him for the first time, or to come back to him after a time away, I'm gonna give you the space right now with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed to do that. Go ahead and raise your hands, if that's you. Come on, awesome. Lord, you are glorified in this room. Come and renew our hearts and lead us to praise you in a new way. Lord, the rocks will not cry out in our place, Father, no way. We're gonna celebrate your goodness every day. In your beautiful, perfect name, Jesus, we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.